When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. Several years ago, Andy Russell and I were working on our book, The Innovation Delusion, How Our Obsession with the New Has Disrupted the Work That Matters Most. And as part of that work, we gave a presentation at the Hagley Library and Archives in Delaware. And as we prepared to go there, we received an email from the guest in this episode, Stephanie Hoops, the National Director of United for Alice, a research center founded at United Way of Northern New Jersey. If you aren't familiar with the innovation delusion, what Andy and I argue there is that our culture's illusory obsession with innovation leads us to neglect both maintenance of things that already exist and what we call the maintainers, the people who keep our world going. Not always, but often enough, the maintainers are underpaid and lack benefits and don't get the recognition, that is, the interpersonal gratitude and appreciation that they deserve. Hoops was, in many ways, working on a similar issue. A class of people her team at United Way calls ALICE, which stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed. These are working families who experience economic hardship and can barely afford to make ends meet. United Way's ALICE program works at the county level in different U.S. states by first determining how much it costs to live in the county using a standardized method for basic counting basic costs, including housing, transportation, food and other necessities. And second, seeing what portion of that county's population makes enough money to cover those costs. Again and again, Hoops and her team find about that about 40% of American households are Alice, are having trouble making ends meet, are struggling to get by. And again, these are working families. Now, there are many problems in this world. Many people on the planet are literally starving. 
According to one figure I've seen, more than 800 million people on planet Earth go hungry every year. People are also dying of easily treatable diseases, including things as simple as diarrhea. Something like 1.5 million people are dying a year from diarrhea, with more than 500,000 of those deaths being children. Also, humans on this beautiful rock of ours are spewing ever-increasing amounts of greenhouse gas emissions. Few nations emit as many as we do on a per capita basis right here in the United States. We are the glorious, greedy guts of global warming. But I read the other day that China's emissions have now surpassed those of all the rich nations in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Globally, we face big problems. But even in this global context, I believe it is appropriate at times to think at the level of the nation, including because that is how governance is divided on our planet today. And to my mind, the reality of Alice, the fact that 40% of American households can barely afford to make ends meet, is the central thing. You add that to climate change, including how both climate change and climate policy affect the poor, and you've got like 90% of our problems as a people. Even things like the costs of healthcare, the burden of school loans, and many, though not all, aspects of racial inequality are primarily problems because of this 40% of the population, because of Alice. This staggering reality of economic hardship is what I care about most. And I think the reason I care about it is because of where I grew up, my hometown of Joliet, Illinois. Now, if you stick with me over the next few years, either just with the podcast or also with the YouTube videos that are coming, for better or worse, you're going to learn a lot about Joliet. It's a Rust Belt town. It's a post-industrial town. It was once a steel town, but that is long, long gone. My high school and I'm very proud of my high school, is Joliet Central. I think when I, when I was there, it had about 2,000 students. It was about one-third white, one-third black, and one-third Latino. It was a diverse place, and that diversity is very important to me and the way I look at the world. And it was poor. There was lots of poverty around. And because this is the United States of America with its history of racism, the black and Latino folks tended to be poor more often than the white folks. But believe me, there were plenty of poor white folks. Joliet was full of Alice families. Black, brown, white, you name it. And there was hard shit. There was alcoholism and addiction and gangs and violence and just a lot of financial stress and hardship. The kind of stress that makes people sick. And there was also so many good people there. People like the Coughlin family and the Piskers and the Remuses and the Diabs and the Sosongs and the Manleys and the Horrigans and Jim Berkey and Lorraine Guerrero and James Hill and Omar Walker and Essence Brass and the Love family. And so many folks from my school days that I care about deeply even now. You see, there were so many, many good people from all across the political spectrum. It wasn't all bad, of course. There are happy stories to be told, but it was hard and is hard. And that's not just Joliet. That is much of this nation, including many portions of Appalachia, where I live today. 
And wherever I go and whatever I encounter, whether it's a Silicon Valley executive talking about how some technology is going to save us or some university president saying that a fucking shiny glass covered innovation campus is going to benefit the people or some academic saying that what we need to worry about is like the ethical, legal and social implications of nanotechnology or AI or whatever the fuck. I think about Juliet and I think about all of the Alice folks throughout this country and I get angry and I want to flip over tables. So that's where I'm coming from. Go Steelman. Because this is what I care about, I have decided to start working on a new book with the jokey working title, A Good History of Shit Jobs, which will explore the history of the US economy from about 1970 to the present. One big reason so many working families struggle financially is because our economy is full of low paying shit jobs. And we need to understand why this is. A good history of shit jobs will not be about a Joliet, but Joliet will be a big character in it. And I'll just say at the outset, although as an extremely high-performing, self-righteous lib, I prefer the policies Democrats put forward, neither party is innocent when it comes to this 40%. And neither party has done an awful lot to change this hard reality. But you see, in the name of justice, we have to stand up for this 40%. Together, we must rise for Alice. Stephanie Hoops has a PhD from the London School of Economics, and she began her career as a professor, as an academic. And as you'll see, she kind of fell into measuring Alice households. And eventually, so that she could work on Alice full time, she left academia. To which I say, here, here. Stephanie led a study of economic hardship in a county in New Jersey, and then so many people found the measure compelling and useful, they asked her to do it elsewhere. At this point, the Alice program works in over half of the U.S. states. You should go onto the Alice website, which I will link to on our websites and socials, and see if your community has an Alice report. I also wanted to say Alice has a whole wonderful team of really, really interesting folks. Big shout out to Dan Treglia. And maybe sometime we'll have the whole Alice team on. Here's the deal. I think the Alice program is really important. Like Catherine Coleman Flowers and William Barber II, Stephanie Hoops is one of my great heroes. So if you have not met her yet, I could not be more excited to introduce her to you right now. Get excited. Stephanie, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Wonderful to be here, Lee. Thanks so much for having me. Um, let's just start with the basics. What is Alice? And, you know, yeah, tell us about Alice. So Alice is um, someone that you know, and Alice is also a measure uh, that we use uh, for financial hardship. So um, technically, uh, Someone who is Alice uh, lives in a household that earns above the federal poverty level, but below what we call a household survival budget, which is the bare minimum to live and work in the modern economy. 
So it includes uh, a, a rented apartment, uh, the thrifty food plan, uh, family child care, basic health care, basic transportation, a smartphone plan, and Alice pays taxes. So that's kind of the technical side. Alice is also a person that we all know. Um, it got easier to explain Alice during the pandemic. A lot of essential mm. workers were Alice, but often working in jobs that um, are critical to making our economy run smoothly and yet often don't pay enough to afford a family to, to live where those jobs are. So we have children who are Alice. We have uh, parents who are Alice. Many of us have been Alice. Um, and about 40% of households across the U.S. Are, are below that household survival budget. We say below the Alice threshold. And does that, when you say 40%, does that include the people in poverty who are, um, who are not working or how does that work, the 40% number? Right, so uh, we add poverty plus Alice and that equals the total below the Alice threshold. Okay, right on. Um, and can we talk a bit about how you come up with the numbers? Like um, just in terms of how do you, you work at the county level, you look at things at the county level, how do you come up with like the costs of living and then, you know, the income to judge like, you know, whether people can meet the cost of living or not? Right. So in the beginning, we spent a lot of time criticizing the federal poverty level, which is uh, a number that was developed 50, 60 years ago when Lyndon Johnson needed a measure for the war on poverty. And it's basically that same number ticked up by inflation since. It doesn't take into account difference in the cost of living in different places. So it's the same number for Mississippi as it is for Manhattan. Mm -hmm. um, and it hasn't adjusted for changes in the economy. So the way uh, families operate and, and what you need actually to, to work in, in our modern economy. So to uh, address those criticisms, we have developed this household survival budget for every county in the country. So all 3,000 plus counties, we you know, dig into what are the bare minimum costs, and then we compare it to what household income is. So that's where we get that gap. Mm -hmm. And um, so you have you now have data for every county. Have you done study? You haven't done studies of every county. How does that? Is there a difference there? Um, yeah. So we we have the, the the national kind of top level data on mm -hmm. our website uh, unitedforalice.org, and then working with our partner states. Uh, so we're in more than half half of the states in the country now. We do a deep dive, and we can break down those Alice households by race, ethnicity, mm -hmm. by age, by um, household composition, and you know, dig even uh, below that county level. So looking at uh, county subdivisions, zip codes, in some cases, census tracts. Um, so really getting granular and understanding what's happening in communities. That's great. And, you know, I want to tell us about how Alice came to be. And part of that story is like, what what is your background? How do you end up doing this work? And I know you started in academia and then kind of shifted out of it. So <laughs> yeah, I want to I want to hear these stories. Uh, so it's it's a good uh, lesson, and you never know what leads to what. Um, you're right. My background is I'm an academic. I have a PhD from the London School of Economics, and I taught at Columbia. And then when I was at Rutgers uh, with two small kids at home, I, I volunteered at my local United Way, and 
lived in a, a county that was uh, fairly wealthy, uh, Morris County, New Jersey, if your listeners know it. And at the time, the poverty rate was about four or five percent. And I thought, this is so exciting. I'm going to be on the, you know, a grants committee in the United Way, and, and we're going to get rid of poverty. Like we could be the yeah. first county to uh, eliminate poverty. And then I started reading the grants and they were very compelling and explained a lot of need. And I just thought this isn't matching the number that's, you know, I'm, I'm seeing, but hmm. on the ground, this is a very different situation. So looked into what the federal poverty level was actually measuring, you know, put on my research hat and uh, dug into it and thought this, this is not helpful. You mm-hmm. know, here we are with a big problem in Morris County and it doesn't, you know, the, the data is not telling us that. So I went to the United Way and said, hey, I've got this idea for a project. Um, it won't cost you anything. We'll do the study on Morris County. And that's where we came up with the survival budget. The acronym ALICE um, had this amazing group of volunteers who, who helped do the research and put this together. And then we came up with a little report, shared it out. And I thought, you know, that was a really nice contribution to this United yeah. Way. It was very interesting. Went back to my teaching. And, and then I started hearing people using it and mm. uh, using that data for uh, their grant applications, for um, making policy decisions. And when a friend came out of um, a, a county meeting of, of agency directors and she said, we were trying to you know, make a decision. And somebody said, how will this affect Alice? And when I heard that, I'm like, we are on to something. You know, if people are using that as, as a way to help direct policy, that's important. Mm-hmm. So the United Way came back and said, hey, let's update this two years later. And I said, let, let's do it, but let's do it for the whole state. You know, mm-hmm. we did one county. And then so then when we did New Jersey, it just blew everybody's socks off. We, you know, front page of the state newspaper, you know, here's this innovative new measure that's really telling us something. And fast forward 10 years later, you know, we are now a national research organization. I left mm-hmm. Rutgers a few years after that report and, and do this full time. Wow. So and did it, I mean, was it other states? To all your volunteer uh, <laughs> out there, you never know what, what it might lead to. Yeah, I had a, I was chatting with you and your team yesterday and it was like one of your, um, one of the guys who works with you uh, was also volunteering at United Way and t- it turned out to be like have this data science background, basically. And now he's on your team. So you never know what's going to happen, I guess. Right. And, and, hey, not not all United Way volunteers <laughs> get roped in, but uh, yeah, <laughs> he was he was painting walls. And, and now he and he has this amazing uh, data data background. So it's yeah. a wonderful fit. That's awesome. So, yeah, and how did it spread? So did people, um, well, before I get to how it spread across the nation, which is, I think, an important question, that when you did this, when you did a follow-up study that was statewide, I mean, New Jersey is a really fascinating state to look at when it comes to this, because it varies highly by county. You have parts of New Jersey that are basically in New York City, right? Hoboken and Jersey City. And then you have parts of, New Jersey that are really rural and like, you know, much lower cost of living. So did you find like huge variations across the state in terms of Alice or how did, what does that look like? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, we, we dug into 
like there's important differences in in both sides, the cost and the income yeah. side. So um, those metro New York City counties have really high rents, but they also have public transportation, which can save Alice some some money. So that's built into our model. Huh. And then some of those rural counties have lower housing costs, but you have to drive uh, to right. get anywhere. So, um, and and the wages are lower in some of those places, or you have to drive a long way to a higher paying job. And hence mm-hmm. we see a lot of traffic uh, in New Jersey. Um, so there's yeah. Alice in every county in, mm-hmm. in New Jersey. Um, so those things even out, um, but there are definitely um, higher percentages in certain locations. And, you know, I think one of the most striking things to us is digging down below that county level, you know, that there are places in Essex County a few miles apart where, yeah. you know, the difference is 20 percentage points, you know, wow. maybe 20 percent Alice to 50 percent Alice and in, in you know, almost walking distance. Hmm. And so then it did spread across the country. And, you know, how was it just people started hearing about it and. You know, and what's the model? Do you guys, do you usually work with counties? Do you work with states? How does it, how does it usually play out for these reports? Yeah, so we are a, a small but mighty organization and we have spread mostly by example, word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so once New Jersey did it, we had five states come and say, hey, we want one of those reports. Mm-hmm. So we expanded and and um, built it out. And, and um, as part of our, model, we have a, um, a biennial methodology review where we pull in external experts to look at the methodology and especially the components of that household budget, what's included, what, what do you, is the minimum you need for yeah. the modern economy. And so we've had some knockdown blowout discussions on uh, the cell phone, for example. Yes. Uh, that that wasn't in it in the beginning. And then it you just couldn't deny it. You needed a cell phone yeah. to work. You know, you get your schedule, you get you have to report, you know, all yeah. kinds of things are have to happen on your cell phone these days. And then the pandemic hit. And mm-hmm. then we're like, do you have to have uh, Internet at home? Yeah. Uh, and so that was another whole discussion where we landed that actually the bare minimum is you probably just need a little more bandwidth on your cell phone. Mm-hmm. And it really strikes home at the, the the driving philosophy of the budget is the bare minimum. Yeah, uh, it's not you know the, what you'd like to have. It's not right. It's not good. Um, and and so I I do want to reiterate that for your listeners because I don't want anyone going out there and going if you can earn this survival budget you're you're you got it made. It's like that's right. minimum. Right, so, and I go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that that. Um, that that philosophy, that that driving uh, underlying um, ideal resonated with folks. You know, you can understand it. It makes sense. Um, and so as we expanded, it's you can explain it. People, you know, get it. They know Alice. They um, can, can see the items in the budget and think about what they spend and compare that. So it's yeah. that, that transparency and that commitment to these, you know, these prince, basic principles um, has really helped with the expansion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have. I think I'll have more questions for you on that front. But a cu- before we get there, the other day we were talking about how, um, you know, Alice numbers in a sense begin in 2007, 2009. There were some changes in how things were counted in the country. So 
what changed at that, at the, in, in, you know, in that period that allows us to, to do what you do? Uh, so for the budget, we get the data from all kinds of places uh, because, the, you know, housing, food, they all come from different, uh, but we use publicly available sources. For the income, we rely on the American Community Survey. And we um, rely, you know, on, on their tabulated results, which they release on a regular basis. And in 2007, they only were releasing uh, one and three-year estimates, which means that for the smallest geographies in our country, there, there was no good income data. Um, by the time you get to 2010, uh, they had the five-year estimates and we were able to get the granular data that we needed to report every community um, hmm. in, in the country. And just to make clear, the guiding philosophy there is that it really does depend on where you live for these things, right? I mean, we have to look at the county level more than like the state level because there's so much variety in within states. You know, these averages conceal so much uh, hardship yeah. that, it, it, you know, that's another one of the guiding principles is get as granular as, as you can. Yeah. So... You know, and this is the question I'm about to ask is something where it's got another thing that's going to depend a lot depending on where you live. But where do, what do we know about, you know, things like race and gender and, and Alice? What do those numbers look like? Um, so you can imagine uh, that there are, are big uh, gaps by race, ethnicity. Um, we have been tracking that from the very beginning. It's something that has been important to, to you know, our, our work. And um, consistently, we see uh, across geographies, states, um, that uh, um, while there's Alice in, in every community, certain groups like Black, Hispanic, Native American are disproportionately Alice. Mm -hmm. And how about, um, you know, I think that like working moms, working single moms, you know, they get a lot of attention in certain media. And I mean, a lot of times I'm not sure what to do with that because it could be like moral panic and, you know, people focusing on the wrong things, frankly. But does that show up in the data at all? Um, well, it, it really does. So mm -hmm. uh, we uh, do a lot of uh, digging into uh, families with children and they mm -hmm. make up about a third of, of households in the U.S. And children are expensive. Yes. Uh, you know, as, as any parent on this uh, call knows. Um, and so when you have two parents working, you have, you know, two incomes that can possibly support this, you know, larger budget. We see single parents uh, have some of the largest uh, Alice numbers yeah. across the country. And then um, even, you know, so that holds for men and women. But when you look at women, um, the, the percentages are even higher. And I think that that just stems back to, you know, the gender pay gap um, yeah. and, and it's playing out. And, and in a really serious way, we also, you know, that that means those children are living in a household that's struggling to support their basic needs. Yeah. Oh, it's so stressful. You know, I mean... Yeah, I, re I read, a, read a nice essay. I'll, I'll send it to you uh, by this guy, Johan Matthew, who's at Rutgers, I think, actually. And um, it was in this uh, special issue. Uh, we're going to be a podcast uh, episode about a special issue where historians are looking at uh, Thomas Piketty's second book, the big capital and ideology book. 
But Matthew's essay is really nice because it just looks at all the health outcomes of inequality and poverty. And I mean, you know, it's just amazing when you look at how stressful it is to be in one of these households, you know, and, and all the negative impacts it has on on health and, and on kids' outcomes of all sorts. So it's really incredible kind of pressure cooker for these folks. It really is. And um, it, it's hard to capture that in the data. Mm-hmm. We, um, we, we, we try, but we also have this amazing marketing team that has helped us uh, collect some video stories of Alice families. And um, they are on, on our website if, if folks want to, but to your point, just to hear that stress to, yeah. and sometimes it's a small thing, you know, you, your kid can't go to the birthday party because you can't afford the birthday present, or, you know, you're having to choose between medication and a trip or even electricity, you know, some, some of these horrible decisions uh, that folks have to make, um, yeah. they're, they're not good choices. And, and I think that there's a lot of judgment, you know, gosh, why are you, taking out a payday loan. Well, it's because I'm trying to keep the electricity on. So my mom's oxygen will continue. And and so it's, it's different than you might think. And it's, um, it's, it's hard to get that across in the numbers. So I I really appreciate that you brought that up. Yeah. Well, I I really like the fact that you all, I mean, not only you have numbers, but you have the stories. And I think we all know that those, those stories of individuals are really important for getting across the idea. And the, I think that, you know, it might just be based in baked into how humans operate. We need stories about individuals uh, to to make things compelling on top of numbers for whatever reason, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's and it's a great combination. It's a great combo because if you hear a story, you could dismiss it. Oh, that's just that one uh, yeah. story. But then you hear, gosh, there's 10,000 more of those stories. Right. Um, and, and you have to look at it. Yeah. So you you also just in terms of identity and you know different kinds of folks you also recently did a a, a report on disability right so what do you find with that I mean how does how does disability you know map to Alice so this is the second part of a series that we're doing focusing in on individuals so um, our our work started on households and that's really your basic unit of analysis for for an e- economic understanding but. Some groups, you know, have distinct features. So we, the first in the series was children. Mm-hmm. This is a uh, second one that was just released, uh, disabilities. And the third is going to be veterans in November. Mm-hmm. Um, but disabilities was really eye-opening for us. And our, our country um, is suffering from ableism. There is a huge bias um, and, and it's a, the, the the data just shown through that with and without a disability is one of the biggest gaps that we've seen of any of the measures that, that any of the indicators that we've been tracking. Hmm. Um, so a, more than half of, of people with disabilities are below the Alice threshold compared wow. to about a third of people without disabilities. So wow. an, an, an enormous differentiator and it strikes at every level. So mm. uh, if you have a disability, you're less likely to go on to education beyond the high school level. And even when you do, you're, you earn less. Um, you're more likely to be unemployed, which means you know actively looking for work or out of the workforce. Three times as likely to be unemployed. So 
know, even in a tight labor market, people with disabilities are having a hard time finding a job. Um, during the pandemic, they were more likely to have their job disrupted. Um, and so these things all lead to, to more consequences uh, and things like difficulty finding housing, mm-hmm. um, A, that you can afford, and B, that's accessible. Um, you know, that, that, that housing stock is, is a smaller number. And then um, if you're Alice, you are earning above that federal poverty level, which is what most uh, public benefits are based on. Mm. So that group that's earning above but still struggling isn't receiving things like uh, SNAP, TANF, um, and for people with disabilities, SSI is a huge one. Yeah, um, it has very strict limits, and so only a, a, a small portion of people with disabilities who are struggling financially are are actually getting that benefit. Wow. I also wondered, you know, I think you and I like briefly talked about this in some previous conversation, but how, what do we know about? Uh, I'm going to put this poorly because I kind of lack the vocabulary here, but like, but what do we know about people cycling through Alice or being there temporarily and then moving out of that position versus kind of like being there forever? Do we have numbers on that? So we have not uh, been able to access data longitudinally with, yeah. you know, because we need that income over time. It's true. Um, yeah. So we, we have not, but I can, definitely tell you that the number of Alice households has continued to grow over the last decade. Mm. And so while there may be some uh, households who, who are, you know, working above it, yeah. more are falling into it. And so obviously there was a big jump in the numbers uh, through the great recession, our last big economic uh, disruption. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are, uh, eagerly awaiting the census uh, results uh, for 2021, which will be our first indicator of the impact of the pandemic. We know that the pandemic, you know, with the data that we've seen has been hard on folks who were already Alice, but we don't know how many more households became Alice during Hmm. the pandemic yet. Um, But there is a a big cluster of incomes right above and below that Alice threshold. So, what we know from poverty stu- studies is that people do move up and down right. of those kind of thresholds several times during a year, even, you know, you think about okay. wages fluctuating. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, we, we would expect that, but I don't have the hard data. Yeah. Um, but what, I mean, would I hear you right that Alice numbers generally have been increasing over the last decade? So, right, even when you think about the recovery from the Great Recession, um, Alice didn't recover, or Alice Mm -hmm. was just starting to recover, and then the pandemic hit. Okay. And, you know, think about it. If you um, are just struggling to get by, and then something happens, your car breaks down, somebody gets sick, um, a tree falls on your house, you have no savings, how how do you fill in that gap? Mm -hmm. And so... You know, the recession hit, you'd lost uh, a job or your, your wages uh, were, your uh, hours were cut back, so your wages were reduced. It takes a long time to, to recover from that, mm. uh, to, to pay back that credit card or that other debt um, and get even you know, back on your feet and then let alone start saving again. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of the jobs that were lost uh, during the Great Recession were replaced with lower paying jobs. 
And right. we we did track we do track that. And in most states, you know, those those number of low low wage jobs increased steadily um through through the last decade. Hmm. I mean, I've always wondered about that. So we do have numbers on like the numbers of jobs with different wages and can see that growth in low wage jobs. Yeah, one of the, the my most uh, powerful graphs that I think the team came up with tracks low, medium and high wage jobs, which yeah. is defined by their ability to support the survival budget. Hmm. And you see the low wage jobs increasing steadily, uh, medium wage jobs sometimes are bouncing around and the high wage jobs uh, are are you know, a, a nice slope down. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Um, one of the things I, I wanted to ask, did you see this Peter Coy piece in the Times about the, you know, the idea that people are living paycheck to paycheck? And his argument was that that really depends on how you're asking the question. Um, and if you drill down, like it turns out, you know, people will say they're living paycheck to paycheck, but then if you ask them, they have extra money around or there's a lot more going on there. I mean, I just wondered if you had thoughts about that piece, if you saw it, I don't know. We have, we have strong thoughts about that piece. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's so funny that you asked that. So yeah, we've been talking about it in our group and I hope Peter Coy is listening. But yeah. I did, I did email and uh, direct message him to let him know that we have a very reliable measure of and definition of what it means to be living paycheck to paycheck. Uh-huh. We hope that he will, uh, you know, look at the Alice measures and and use that in in not only an article on you know looking at how do you define it, but it's important to understand what's happening to that, you know, at least a third of our workforce. Yeah. Um, if you want to understand what's happening in the U.S. economy. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, and I think that when I was reading the Koi piece, I was like, well, I mean, really what you're talking about here, I think the difference is mostly in the high end of the income spectrum where people, in a sense, have filled up their, you know, they have so much coming in per, per month and they're mostly spending it, right? But then, you know, they do have social networks and all kinds of things to fall back on if they hit like a rough time, right? Um, so that might be true, but I don't think it really, the, the thought really applies for the Alice households who often don't have that slack, would be my guess. So and we do have hard data on that. We have um, uh, worked with the Federal Reserve and analyzed the results of the their annual SHED survey, which is the survey that looks at uh, individuals' income. And they asked that uh, ubiquitous question, you know, uh, do you have a rainy day fund to cover a $400 expense? And... The average is about, you know, half households, uh, half of households have resources to do that. But when you break it down by um, households above and below the Alice threshold, Hmm. hugely different. So like three quarters of folks above the Alice threshold can cover that expense, whereas about a quarter of Alice households can cover that expense. And that's a perfect example of if you want to understand the U.S. economy, looking at those averages Okay, about half folks can can do it. You know, we're in pretty good shape. Right. But it's it's you know, a, a one section of the economy really has got it covered, and then another huge portion, that's not even close to reflecting their yeah. situation. This this can I wanted to ask you about credit too, and um, so 
again, do to emphasize you guys do the bare minimum for, you know, like for important reasons there, that's the, that's the focus because it really has to be an argument about what it takes to survive. Right. And, but the reality is that like many, I mean, we know from the numbers that many households on top of having trouble um, paying for those bare minimums also have like $10,000 in credit card debt or whatever, you know, I mean, I don't know where the average is right now after COVID um, stimulus funds, but anyway, a lot of credit card debt and other forms of debt. And all, obviously credit card debt and other forms of debt are also important coping mechanisms as if you've already also spelled out like, what else are you going to do if you get into a corner some months other than, you know, bring in extra money somehow? So what you mean, I, I'm just interested in your thoughts on credit as coping. And, you know, if you if you all know anything about credit or looked at those numbers. Yeah, it's credit. Yeah. Yes. You're bringing up so, so many good points. Um, right. And, and we do not include uh, credit card debt or student debt um, in, yeah. in our student budget. Debt. But recognize, yeah. you know, many uh, Alice households are struggling with that. And, you know, if you're going to try and get ahead, that does seem like a reasonable approach. Um, but we, um, as, as you mentioned, you know, we, we have some very important reasons for why we don't include that and, and yeah. or a savings category, because we measure how many households live below this. So we don't want to be seen as inflating those numbers. Yes. This is, you know, these are the folks that we're reporting are not meeting the bare minimum. If you, you know, raise yeah. that level a little bit, the numbers would be so much higher. Yeah. Um, but credit is a really important part of a, of a capitalist economy and being able to borrow um, increases your ability to do a lot of things, uh, own a house, go to college, start a business. And most Alice households don't have access to that kind of credit. Yeah. Uh, they don't qualify. They don't have uh, savings for a down payment for a house, for example. Or if they do, the rates are really high and it makes it a different kind of investment yeah. um, than if you have a high uh, credit score. So as a result, Alice A doesn't borrow um, or uh, pays really high rates at somewhere like a, a payday lender. Right. This brings up, I mean, um, yeah, I also wanted to ask you just about if the mix of expenses has changed over time. And... There's a there's a lecture I give in all my undergrad classes now, which is basically a history of uh, mass production. But I call it modernity equals cheap crap. Um, and my argument is that, like, like, if you want to know about modern life and just like daily life, you know, you end up thinking about Amazon and Walmart and just how, like, in, in a sense, in a specific and narrow sense, our material wealth has um, increased for everybody. Right. Like. 90% of um, 80 or 90% of poor families have air conditioners now. And it's just because we made air conditioners so damn cheap. Right. Um, well, one fa data point I sometimes point to is something like home appliances prices have fallen by a factor of seven since 1950. Right. So all these home appliances, they used to be very expensive. Now they're cheaper. But at the same time that's happening, we have housing crises all across the country we know about costs that aren't going down, like healthcare and education and all these things. So I'm just wondering, like, even from like, you know, 2009 or when or 2010, when those county level um, numbers kick in, 
do we see a change in the mix where maybe like expenditures on stuff is going down because it's getting cheaper, but housing is going up or something like that? Yeah, so, so really interesting dimensions to, to your question. Um, we, we do adjust the survival budget slightly and, and we, we included this uh, cell phone, which I mentioned right. earlier. But those core basics have not changed too much. You know, the mm -hmm. housing is the largest uh, budget item for, for Alice. Uh, Childcare um, has remained very expensive. Another one that hasn't gone down. It's uh, not, no. yeah. <laughs> <Other> direction. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and, you know, very service-based, so you can understand that. Um, food, you know, may have dipped uh, at some point, but is certainly in increasing significantly now. Um, mm -hmm. And so we actually try to capture this in what we call the Alice Essentials Index, which is basically a measure of inflation of the goods and services that Alice buys. Hmm. And it's in... You meant to be like a companion to the consumer price index, the CPI, which measures all the goods and services that people of all incomes buy. Yeah. And because that includes so much of the stuff that you were just talking about, which has remained uh, the same price or even dropped in many cases. Right. Um, so, you know, until recently, CPI was, was a very low number. But what, and when we, compare that to um, the Alice Essentials Index, there's a huge gap. Those things that Alice is buying have increased at almost twice the rate as regular inflation over mm. the last decade. Um, so we're really anxious to see how that's playing out uh, now during the pandemic with yeah. so many things going up. But it is, again, you know, I, I um, get so uh, stressed when I hear now all this attention on on inflation i thought where where were you where, yeah, were, you where were you a couple of years ago when yeah. it's hitting people where that it, it makes a huge difference too and wages were not increasing at that same rate we include you know yeah. wages for some of the most common jobs on those graphs so you can see those you know three different trajectories yeah. um and so alice has been battling with inflation for a long time it's good that other people are now seeing that it's a problem. Um, but I'm not sure that the the remedy of slowing the economy, slowing wage growth is uh, going to be a, a satisfactory solution for Alice households. I hear you. I totally agree. I mean, it's interesting, right? I mean, it's, it's just another one of those cases where I actually saw a good piece and I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, but it might have been the Times, which said like, the what's happening right now in the economy with inflate the kinds of inflation we're experiencing and um i think it was also maybe looking at um what's happening in the markets and how it's infecting investments it was mo it mostly it's putting the biggest squeeze on the upper middle class um and i think that's why that's why you know all of a sudden it ends up on the front page of newspapers and everyone's getting like you know there's all this attention because it's like, oh, well, you know, the people who pay for New York Times subscription, they're feeling it. So now it's a big deal, you know, <laughs> whereas like for a long time, it's been hitting, you know, the less well to do. And we haven't been paying attention at all. So, yeah, they have a much bigger voice. Uh, they have, uh, you know, an ability to, to share their concerns in a way that many Alice households uh, don't in that, you know, Alice is busy. It, yes. it takes a lot of time to be poor, you know. You Not to, hanging out on Twitter all day, it turns out. You have to stand in line for three hours at Costco to get the cheap tires. Um, right. And and so, 
Um, but I do want to point out that Alice boats and uh, mm. from what we can uh, tell of, of some of the exit polls that about a third of the electorate um, to a half could be Alice voters. Wow. Um, and I think we've seen a lot of frustration from Alice yes. voters uh, and, and voting at extremes um, at yes. both ends of the political spectrum, that there's mm. a lot of frustration. The system is not working for folks who, you know, they're at their job full time every day and not able to bring home enough to support their family. That is incredibly yeah. frustrating, especially in a country that was founded on this belief. If you work hard, you know, you can you can support your family. Yeah. Um, this is a, a complicated question, no doubt. And there's going to be multiple factors at play. But I mean, when you think about the fact that so many working families can barely afford to make ends meet, I mean, what's wrong with our the U.S. economy that that's true? And I, I realize by saying what's wrong, <laughs> I'm asking, I'm not asking the question, what are all the things wrong? You know, what's going on? What, what, do, what do you think is up? Um. It's a great question, and and there could be books uh, addressing the answer. I'm hoping you're going to write one. Um, so a couple things. Um, while I think workers have have borne the 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 risk of fluctuations in an economy um, recently, I think that that has increased when you look at the um, uh, decrease in full time salary paid positions. Uh, the number of people working for a company for 20, 30, 40 years, um, you know, that doesn't happen very often today. Um, many more people are working on contract work or in, in smaller companies, certainly changing companies to get a better position or salary, and then the rise of the gig economy. Mm -hmm. um, but you see so much in, in uh, industries like uh, retail, uh, tourism, entertainment, that when times are busy, you know, tons of hours available to work. When times aren't, you're cut back. And so yeah. uh, if you, you know, work in a resort town, you might not be busy on the off season. Uh, if you're in retail around the holidays, you might be crazy busy, but then your rent continues, you know, after the holiday, the Christmas holiday rush, you still have to pay rent in January, February, March. Mm -hmm. um, and so those workers are the least able to to bear those fluctuations um and yet it's a way that the companies are saving money and, yeah. and building a, a better profit margin so that those risks of fluctuations of snowstorms of ships in demand supply chain cuts mm -hmm. um a lot of workers are are the ones that ultimately you know bear that that risk i think what you know I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but I mean, I think we know since the fifties and sixties, maybe seventies, the service portion of the economy has really grown, uh, you know, in, in, you know, in comparison to other parts of the economy. And a lot of those jobs are low paying jobs in the service sector. So, I mean, do we know, do, have you looked at kind of sectoral differences around these numbers and, is it is it kind of a is it part of the story of spread of the service economy and the overall economy? Definitely part of of the um, story, and and we are um, we we have this great new data set that we're mining that does get into cool. all the jobs, and uh, hope to be able to share more of that next year. But even with what we have been able to to share and 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 what we are seeing is 
there are sectors where there are way more Alice jobs, mm-hmm. but there are Alice jobs in every sector. Yes, that's that, right. I think yeah. even struck us, you know, in, yeah. in finance and in technology in manufacturing, you know, areas where you might not think there are Alice yeah. uh, workers, there are um, different percentages. But if, if you are thinking, oh, you know, Alice doesn't work in, in my company, you're probably wrong. Yeah, good point. Good point. There's a flip side to that story. So, I mean, you have this, um, I love, by the way, I love this, these three uh, reports you have coming out on children, disability and, and vets, because I mean, I think part of the argument here too would be my guess is like, um, well, there's a whole, the question is how we deal with the question of irresponsibility versus responsibility, which I think is a knee jerk reaction to issues of poverty in American culture. But not only do we do, do you do all do a lot of work by focusing on the bare minimum and not things like credit cards, which people have kind of moral valences around. But but obviously, I think that, you know, children, the disabled and vets are three groups that our our society sees um, as, you know, as deserving of fair treatment. So I'm looking forward to the the vet one in November. Um, And what else? I mean, uh, what else is going on? What's next for the Alice team? Well, I think what we're all anxiously awaiting is to be able to update all of our uh, traditional uh, Alice measures uh, next year, which will come out probably in April of uh, 2023 to see what the impact of the pandemic has been. Mm-hmm. Um, so we uh, do a report for each of our partner states that digs into you know what's happening. And these new reports uh, at the beginning of the year will show, you know, how, how did the demographics change? How did jobs and cost of living change in your state? And then, you know, how, how did Alice deal with that during, during the um, pandemic? Yeah. So um, that's, that's big uh, on our horizon. Uh, we also have a, an update to the Alice Essentials Index. Um, so to better understand how all this inflation uh, yeah. is impacting Alice. And then um, at the end of the year, um, we'll be sharing out our new economic viability dashboard that will help oh. uh, folks look at where the gaps are for housing, jobs, and kind of those core needs that communities um, provide. Hmm. And not only where they're good, but also where they're the gaps. And, and one of the things that, that we know from our pilots is oftentimes where the good jobs are, you can't find affordable housing. Right, right. And in places where there's housing that you can afford, there aren't very good jobs. Yeah. And so understanding that and, you know, where are your peer counties? Where are your um, cities that have done better? Um, what what uh, community supports do they provide that meet some of those core needs? So, um, yeah, awesome. we're excited to, to share that out. You know, that 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 topic it just brings up the kind of question for me. Um, what do you think about like distance work, telework and stuff? Because I, I, I think that it's never going to affect more than like, and I don't think it's going to be a huge portion of the economy is ever going to be doing that. But a lot of friends, you know, I have friends who would like to live in a mountain in West Virginia, but do like some high end tech job, you know, and that basically that's happening for like a small piece of the, um, the economy. So I just wonder, have you, I mean, yeah, what, what do you think about this distance work issue? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, obviously a, a wonderful solution for, for a lot of folks. Um, unfortunately, a lot of Alice jobs yeah. can't do that. Exactly. Um, you know, if you needed, 
be cutting the lawn or repairing the bridge or taking care doing of construction or whatever child. Yeah. <laughs> um, or or you know the so so some things you you can't do remotely exactly and so i i think that that's important to recognize you know that yeah. those jobs that we need to to take care of our family members to keep our economy running. Um, you know, the guy who fixes your cable is really important. Yes. <laughs> and uh, um, so recognizing that those jobs are important and, and need to be paid so that you can live where those repairs need to be made, where those people need to be taken care of. Um, and then just uh, a, a word to, to folks who are on overdrive on uh zoom and uh work from home even alice you know there are alice jobs where that's uh possible and a lot of customer service jobs for example um but you know maybe take it easy on uh what's in their background or uh if there's noise that not everybody has a, a beautiful office to be working from yeah. uh people have a lot going on in, in in the background that uh is is part of the stress of being in an alice household so just have some some mindfulness uh, for that. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I'm a big believer in the Alice Project. My friends are actually probably sick of me talking about Alice numbers because <laughs> I, I bring it up so often in conversation. So thank you for doing this really, really important work. And you know, I just can't wait to see what you guys come up with next. Well, thank you. Really fun to talk about it with you today, Lee. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. Check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and is supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are hosted in the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the media production manager with Virginia Tech Publishing and serves as producer and sound engineer for Peoples and Things. Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.